Welcome back to the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Liz Malloy, Professor in Work Integrated Learning in the Department of Medical Education at Melbourne Medical School. Liz's area of research looks at workplace learning and interprofessional education with a particular focus on feedback and the way feedback literacy is enacted in the health workplace. When I spoke to her, she told me this is a fundamental part of learning. So I'm really interested in feedback, particularly feedback in health professions education. And really, I suppose what interests me about feedback is that it's such a key mechanism in learning, but it can also hinder learning. So it has good effects, but also it has negative effects if we get it wrong. And even though we know it's important for learning, a lot of our research shows that often we don't get it right and, you know, it's problematic and we're, we're not really milking feedback for its benefit. So I've looked at um, feedback in, in higher education, how students in uh, university deal with feedback and use it to their effect. But I'm also looking at feedback in the healthcare workplace and how medical trainees and um, students seek feedback and use it to improve their performance. I'm always interested as to where ideas come from. So what led you down this particular research path? Well, you yeah, know, it's inter- an interesting point. I, I was actually a track and field athlete in back in the day. So I was a, a teenager and I was a, a hurdler. And I was very fortunate to have a coach who who had a couple of qualities. One was that he had a photographic memory. And the other thing was that he wasn't particularly cued into social norms. So when he gave me feedback on my running performance, he really said it as it was. So I had this coach where I would run a lap. He would then play me back my performance, almost like he'd seen me on a videotape. And he wasn't particularly worried about how that would come across. So that was my model of feedback. And I found it incredibly helpful. And then ironically, when I went into higher education, I was a physiotherapy student and I was really shocked at this thing called feedback that that these trained teachers were giving. So it really sort of sparked my imagination about what is this thing called feedback and why are some people good at it and and for others it it feels sort of nearly mouthed and, and doesn't have an effect. So that was really the spark. It sounds like when your coach was giving you feedback, he was quite blunt Is that a good form of feedback? Well, you know, it's interesting because in popular media, we often hear this discourse about feedback being blunt and damaging. But in fact, in my research, it shows that feedback, often people are, and I I used the term before, merely mouthed about what they want to say. So really, it's this phenomenon where people are so sensitive to how the feedback is coming across that they don't say anything at all. And a researcher, Jack Endy, called this vanishing feedback. So, in fact, the the vanishing feedback is more common than the heavy-hitting, hard feedback, if you like. With this vanishing feedback, I'm thinking from a student's perspective now, that if a student doesn't get feedback, they may think that all is well. Indeed. 
Absolutely. So they would be right in thinking that. So, you know, it's really problematic. Educators often think they're giving doing students a favour by looking after their emotional needs but in fact students aren't giving aren't given any material that they can actively work with. A lot of research is born out of challenges which makes me ask has feedback not been done well in the field of medical education? Yeah I mean it's an interesting point I think because it's not about uh, not valuing this mechanism I think people really do value feedback but I think What we're trapped in is a a series of rituals that have been perpetuated. So if I'm socialised as a student and I think my job in feedback is to sit there and listen, that is my conception or view of feedback. And then when I become a clinical teacher and graduate, I give feedback, almost like a parenting model. This sort of cycle is perpetuated. So I suppose what we're demanding um, through our research is for people to flip this notion of feedback on its head and to think, well, what would feedback look like if students had a more active role to play in the process? And really that's my passion at the moment is this notion of feedback literacy or or feedback know-how and how we can teach students to be more savvy about uh, identifying the sources of, of feedback in their environment and then gaining that and interpreting that information and using it to their benefit. So in your research, what does this good feedback literacy look like? Well, I mean, we, we did a study and this was in higher education, so it was across the, uh, the disciplines. And so we interviewed, you know, a number of students. We had five focus groups and we, we surveyed about 4,500 students. And we couldn't really ask them about feedback literacy because this is a, you know, a relatively new and, and woolly notion. But what we asked them was, can you tell us about a time where feedback worked for you? So where feedback had an effect. And then they told us their stories about that. And we analysed that data and, and we came up with seven categories and 31 items about essentially what, what would it look like if we bumped into a feedback literate student? What sort of qualities would they have? And so really those qualities, one is that they commit to feedback as, as a cycle of improvement, um, that they see feedback as an active process that happens over time. This notion of sort of eliciting information, so they're not a sitting duck and waiting for information to arrive, but rather they're they're actively seeking information to improve their learning. They've got this sort of ability to process the information and to sort of calibrate Uh, their performance. And one of the categories that I'm really interested in is is this acknowledgement of emotion as part of the feedback process. Because I think often we see emotion as as sort of static that we want to remove from the process in order for feedback to have an effect. But rather we're saying that emotion is a legitimate part of the feedback process. It can be quite diagnostic and how can students learn to harness that emotion to to motivate and and improve their performance. And I suppose that the most important thing about this particular framework of feedback literacy is that they actually do something with the information. So they act on the information to improve their subsequent performance. And, And often when we think about feedback models, we actually don't close the loop. We don't give students an opportunity to make changes to their subsequent performance. Is this twofold, not just from the perspective of the teacher, but also from the student? 
Indeed, yeah. And so again, to sort of use a, a sporting metaphor like a, a dance, for example, if feedback is a dance, why are we spending so long trying to upskill the teacher in their moves and assume that the learner will just follow along? So I, I think there is this sort of reading of the world or this literacy that we want to develop in students. And it's it's not necessarily an automatic skill set that we have. I wanted to come back to emotions because sometimes feedback can generate negative emotions. But talk to me about the positive emotions around feedback. We've tried to stay away from this idea of valence of positive and negative emotions. I think any sort of emotion can be instructive. If we think a little bit about the emotion as as a swell of, of feeling that comes when someone gives you a piece of information, often that can be because you're highly invested in the activity. So if I'm highly invested in becoming a doctor and a good doctor, if you give me information that that threatens that, then I might be defensive. So that's sort of, a, I suppose, a negative or a defensive emotion that we often read about. I suppose the, the more positive emotion could be around, wow, you know, Alina cares about me. She's prepared to put herself on the line and she's giving me some honest information which has my best interests at heart. And that feeling of support can motivate me to improve my performance and to listen to the information that you're imparting. So I suppose, you know, emotion, it can make us feel flat, but it can also motivate us. It can also make us feel supported by those around us. And if we feel supported by the feedback giver, then it doesn't really matter whether the message is critical or or praising. We want to do something with that information. Do you think this can be taught broadly to everyone because everyone has such different personalities and approaches? And I've come across this at medical conferences where I've been there as a coach for the communication side and there have been others there from the medical education side. And I was astonished to see their method of coaching and feedback. As an example, someone would get up and deliver a presentation and the medical professors would just tear them apart and say, that was awful. You were doing so many things wrong. And these were highly experienced professors and leaders. So how do you encourage them to give feedback in a better way? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the first thing is, is awareness. So if we go back to that notion of a ritual, we, we're often so embedded in our practices, we're socialised to think that feedback is, is a certain, you know, there's a certain process in feedback. So we don't even realise if we're being harsh or, or, or not giving strategies for improvement. We're, we're very diagnostic. So I think the first thing is to step back and be reflective about what we're actually doing and, and where those practices have come from. And then I think, you know, you need to dangle something different in, in front of people's eyes and say, well, this is a, a different conception of feedback. What would it look like if you tried it on in your workplace? And, you know, this is what I'm very passionate about when it comes to professional development of, of doctors, for example, is that we can, you know, they can read my papers and they can they can see the principles of how to do it better but until they try on these techniques for size and see, well, what is the effect on the learner when I ask them to self-evaluate, for example, then when they try it on for size, they can see how this new process bears fruit. And that's when you get the click, I think. So lots of rehearsals, lots of role play, lots of simulation in, in a lower stakes environment. 
And then I suppose we need to give people time within their workplace to try to enact these new processes. In some of my other interviews with the fellows, we've discussed how medical education works from the perspective of their culture. Is your research universal or would it need to be adapted for different cultures? Yeah, look, I think there are subcultures everywhere, obviously in different countries, in different hospitals, and then in different hospital departments in terms of the subspecialties. The work of Chris Watling, who's a Canadian, Chris is really interested in the culture of feedback. So I have no doubt that that context and culture influences our norms and, and what we think is acceptable in a certain environment. So, you know, I do think feedback is context specific and, and probably a great example would be in surgery, for example, as a, a, a microculture. There are certain activities within a surgical theatre that lend themselves to feedback. So, so for example, when the, the surgeon and the trainee are scrubbing up before the operation, that's a perfect time for, for the educator to say, Liz, have you done this procedure before? What are you particularly worried about? Uh, what do you want me to watch for within this session? And then during the procedure, it might be quite high stakes and you might not be looking for much feedback. But when the surgeon is then, the trainee is closing the wound, the stakes are lowered and that might be a really good time for the educator to give some more pointed feedback and for the trainee to ask questions and to make sense of that particular session. So that for me is an example of of a culture and a certain set of practices that afford certain things within feedback. And you can imagine in intensive care or in a rehab setting or in psychiatry, again, that there are different cultures that, that affect or influence the feedback process. And of course, you know, how relationships are so socially constructed. So in, in one country, something might be construed as being honest uh, and in another country it could be seen as rude. So there are so many cues that, that we're asking people to read uh, and to be sensitive to in order to do good feedback. So it's, it's not an easy process. And language is so important. It's all about communication and having better conversations. In my work as a coach and mentor, often it's less about me giving feedback and more about encouraging the student to work it out for themselves. Is that something you've looked at? So less about telling and more about getting the other person to speak up and discover? Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I think that's that's the crux of, of good feedback is trying to give the learner some agency and some space to explore their own performance. And it becomes very seductive, I think, as a more senior peer who's been around the traps and might have a better idea of what good performance looks like. It becomes very seductive to tell the learner what you saw and how to fix that next performance. And, and that's what we call feedback as telling within our within our papers. So indeed, I mean, I think um, when this ritual of feedback is telling is so cemented, we need to break that up and sort of blast it open. And, and one of the ways we can do that is actually to button our lips, you know, sit on our hands and button our lips and send forward an invitation. You know, Alina, how do you think you're going? What would you do differently? What's puzzling you? And I suppose what, what's interesting in our research is we're finding that the doctors are getting better at those invitations, but then they run over the top of the learner and don't give them enough space to, to digest and to contribute. So saying less is more, I think, when it comes to feedback. 
Let's talk about practicality now and how your research and ideas begin to be implemented. What are your next steps? Yeah, so I think what we're trying to do at the moment, and particularly around the learner feedback literacy, is to embed this within health professional programs. So in our medical course at at the University of Melbourne, day one, year one, we're introducing this concept of feedback and assessment literacy to our students. And we're giving them opportunities to self-evaluate their own performance, to actively solicit feedback from their teachers. We help to scaffold that sense-making process about their performance rather than just do feedback as telling. So we're really, I suppose, deliberately introducing the information, but also introducing tasks that allow the students to develop this feedback literacy. So that's something that we're doing on the, on the learner side. And then I suppose on the educator side around the world, there's lots of formal uh, master's level programs around clinical education where we try to improve people's skills in, in giving and receiving feedback. And I suppose one of my passions is to get this learning more hands-on. So not just bark at our, not just tell our educators what they need to do in feedback, but 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 actually get them to try these things on for size with peers through simulation and to experiment, to, to be a bit playful and to see for themselves the effect that this more active reciprocal feedback process can have. What do you think might be your challenges in implementing all of this? So I think it it comes back to that the the culture that we were talking about before, where these practices are so embedded, uh, so ingrained that people don't even realise what they're doing and why. And I think, unfortunately, because healthcare, particularly at the moment in the in the world of COVID, you know, the healthcare system is under strain. And when we're busy and we're stressed, we tend to revert to default practices. So people might really embrace these principles, they might agree with these principles of active feedback, but when it comes down to the crunch and they're busy, they tend to revert to those rituals that are automated. And and for me, I see that as our biggest, biggest challenge. For the people listening to this, Liz, what do they need to do? What are the simple next steps they can take to start implementing this in the way they teach or learn? Yeah, so I think for for teachers, for example, who have got a role in in leading the feedback process, I think we need to watch our learners. I think direct observation is so important in the workplace. So watch our learners carefully. Um, A simple invitation to the learner about how do you think you're going? Or can you tell me two things that you did well and two things that you would want to do differently next time? And then give them the space to do that thinking and to express their thoughts, um, I think is key. So really giving the learner the space to self-evaluate and then to start that conversation about, we agree, here are the priorities for learning and now let's talk about some strategies to, to get there. Dr Liz Malloy. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from Dr Ming Jung Ho and her research in the application of anthropology to medical education. For now, goodbye.